Good afternoon. This is Chickie Fitzgerald. It's Friday, April 29th, and this is the Executive Girlfriends Group Call. And it is my pleasure to introduce to you Betty Price. And Betty is the author of a book called True Leaders. Betty, why why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Well, Chickie, I've been in the consulting business, the management consulting business, for about 25 years. Um, survived on my own all that time, <laughs> and um, I have worked with, I began working with primarily uh, more of the small and entrepreneurial businesses, and uh, then little by little uh, moved into larger corporations, and of course what the book did was sort of catapulted me into some uh, major corporations as well. So um, I have a special love more for the entrepreneurial because that's where I came from, and uh, there there seems to be so much uh, innovation and growth. Right. Um, I am hearing some background noise. Um, can I get you guys to put your phones on mute? Star six if you don't have a mute button. Thanks. Okay, great. Now, Betty, you, you wrote your book actually about a decade ago. Is that correct? Did we get you muted too? <laughs> well, hang on just a second. <laughs> just prior Sorry about that. <laughs> That's bad when you mute your speaker. So I'll just repeat that because I'm not sure. Um, it came out just prior to the Enron debacle. So when they say timing is everything, <laughs> it, it right. was really ideal timing. <laughs> Wow. So you focused in um, on what it takes to make true leaders. And, you know, it's it's interesting. I know you interviewed both men and women for the book, but in the very opening of the book, you talk about a strong set of core values that motivate and, and drive leaders. And many of them sound very, very female. I don't know if you've ever been asked that question, but let me just uh, read those off in case you don't have uh, that right in front of you. But those characteristics and strong set of core values are genuinely demonstrating an inherent love and caring for people, expecting results and profits yet not being consumed by them, being competitive when necessary yet exercising control judiciously, and operating from a fundamental belief system that guides them in all decision making. Yeah, they. I mean, they could easily uh, be applied to women. Uh, sounds sort of traditional, but the reality is, and probably uh, the incredible surprise was that the men who are long-term successful actually have those same traits. Um, uh-huh. As an example, uh, although he has retired since, Irv Hockaday was the uh, CEO at Hallmark Cards at the time, and he used the word love regarding people during the interview. And I said, you know, that's kind of an unusual word to hear a man use. Would you have used that word years ago? And so we kind of got into that discussion. But, I mean, his basic philosophy was if you really care about the people in your organization, you have to have a love for people. So um, I I don't think that they're really gender-specific. I think we just don't 
see it. It's maybe not as visible in the behavior of some of the stories that we read about, some of the individual CEOs that we read about, uh, the men in particular. And, uh, and so it's, it's really not gender specific, but uh-huh. um, but needless to say, it's it's probably not a dominant uh, kind of a value that we find in men. And did you find out of those four that one is more important than the others, or is it necessary to have a balance in those four components? Well, obviously a balance. I mean, uh, if you're if you're leading a business, you obviously have to have that utilitarian or that results um, making money. I mean, that's the practical side. You, you've got to do that. Um, and so it's it has to be there in someone who's got strong leadership characteristics. I obviously looked for the social value of that care, caring and love of people because it's pretty hard to say people are our greatest asset if you don't really have a great value, if you don't honestly have a value. And so um, it's not so much that they need to be in balance, but they need to be – the assessment I used um, has varying degrees. It shows varying degrees of that. And so what you find is that if – the social value, which is the caring for people, is too high, then perhaps they're not as strong a leader because they kind of give in to the whims of people. Right. So there, there is kind of a, a balanced part of, of where that needs to be in order to be healthy and productive. Likewise, that utilitarian or getting results and making money has to be in a balanced position because if it's too great, that's where you get the ruthlessness. Right. Well, and I thought it was interesting that you talked about being competitive when necessary. And, you know, we we tend to think, uh, again, when we look at the male and female dynamics that men don't tend to be able to turn off that competitiveness. Uh, although, you know, clearly women can be competitive when necessary. It's, and again, that's why I thought that that sounded much more like a female leadership trait than a male leadership trait. Yeah, but, you know, uh, here's an example of why I say it's not um, really so gender-specific. It kind of depends on the individual. Um, there was a woman who was in a very high-ranking position that I happen to know um, with a major corporation. She was about to retire, so I wasn't going to use her for the book, but I did try to use her as a resource, and I said within your, your sphere, certainly there are some women at these larger corporations um, that you could perhaps help me to access. And she started naming a few people, and then she'd say, well, there's so-and-so, um, and she's the CEO of Fill in the Gap, but you don't want her. And and that now that's not only said about women, but what was interesting is because there were women that were talked about like that. So, you know, I, I just think that it's hard to put any of those characteristics only on one gender because you can find women who are as ruthless as any man you'd ever want to meet, and you can find men who are as caring and sensitive as any woman you'd want to meet. Well, let's dive into the content of the book, because I think um, as we 
jump into what you feel is important. You start off saying that passion is really a prerequisite, excuse me, for being a leader. So walk us through how that played out and what what stories you have around passion as being a key part of leadership. Well, you know, they talked about a passion for their people, a passion for the business, um, just I think it's, it's very characteristic that when someone is pretty passionate about things, they tend to uh, be more focused, put more effort into it. Um, I think one of the stories that was really touching to me was uh, David Novak, who is president of, uh, at the time it was Con- Tricon Global Restaurants. It's really Yum Restaurants, you know, all the fast food chains, right. Kentucky Fried Chicken and all. And he talked about uh, one evening when he was in a bottling plant in St. Louis and they had done a meeting and uh, and towards the end of the day he went around this big table and he said, well, you know, who who really is the most knowledgeable about uh, the distribution? And somebody popped up and said, well, Bob, Bob is. I mean, Bob is just, I mean, he's incredible. And then somebody else popped up and so almost you know, one after the other, three or four people chimed in and talked about how incredible this Bob was. And David said he looked over at Bob, and Bob had tears rolling down his face. And he said to him, what, you know, what on earth is is happening? And he said, I just never knew anyone cared that much. Oh, wow. And so, you know, it was, you know, and He just had an absolute passion. You know, David used him as an example of someone who just had a passion for his job and just, you know, stood out among all the others. But yet, you know, no one had ever really patted him on the shoulder and and told him how much they really valued him. So I think that was one of the more more touching stories. also, at the time, Mike McCarthy was the chairman and CEO of McCarthy Builders. Now, that's a you know pretty tough industry, the construction industry. They're one of the top ten commercial builders in the country. And he talked about a time when he really let things get out of hand, um, didn't really keep his eye on the ball, um, and the company began to lose money and he had to lay people off. And he was so passionate about the people that made his organization what it was and felt so much that he personally was responsible for this that he took his wife and a brand-new baby and loaded them in the car and drove around the country and personally laid off all those people, telling them this was my fault, not yours, and I'm wow. going to rebuild it, and when I do, you'll come back again, which is exactly what he did. Mm. Now, that's a passionate guy. Wow. So the the next one that you lay out has to do, uh, I'm assuming, with vision. The chapter is called See What Is Not Yet Visible. <laughs> right. So, um, it, you know, we know that in order for people to lead, they have to have some kind of a vision about where the company is going and and what is the future going to be. Um, but I think most of these leaders talked about the fact that 
um, just having a vision wasn't really good enough. You have to have the ability to kind of see what others might not yet see, but then you have to have that ability to be able to communicate and make that real so that people can get on board with you and help you make those things happen that you do see that are possible. And we all know how important that communication piece oh, is. Oh, yeah. And and so does that tie in to what you talk about in the next chapter, which is care enough to connect and convey? Right. Because the whole communication issue, um, again, I go back to Irv Hockaday. Um, you know, he, he talked about the importance of transparency, and he said that when he came, when he was brought in as the CEO, that um, there was a rumor going around his <laughs> that he that he had this affair with his secretary, and it just so happened that their times when they when they were off when they had vacations were at the same period of time so he when he had his great big meeting um he brought all the employees together and addressed him and then he brought that up and he said i i hear that there's this rumor that people think i ran off with my secretary <laughs> you know in other words <sighs> just confronted head on which i mean if you knew of Day, you'd just know that that would be the last thing in the world that would ever happen but <laughs> You know, he, it was just an example of how he said you just have to, um, you know, kind of have a sense of humor about it, but address things head on and, and just have that transparency. Um, well, you know, it's interesting in, in looking back at, at these three things together, that, that passion and, and the vision and then caring enough to connect and convey that. Uh, I was talking to another entrepreneur this morning, and she and I were talking about um, how in entrepreneurial ventures it is so common um, for women-run ventures not to get funded. Uh, so much funding uh, goes to the male-oriented uh, uh, organizations and largely because of the male nature of the venture capital community. But one of the things, one of the reasons that had been given to me several years ago when I started uh, an early-stage company and raised uh, uh, quite a bit of capital uh, I was told that the passion of a founder uh, is is not necessarily considered a an attractive trait. So I was I was interested about your your connecting passion and vision, and then caring enough to connect uh, connect and convey that message. Um, how you see that differing in entrepreneurs versus um, in in larger businesses? If you yeah. see a difference in the well, value of that. You know, my immediate reaction to that would be that, first of all, we have to look at um, um, if you're going for venture funding, um, you know, it's kind of like equity funding, um, they want to, they're all about bottom line. I, I, I suspect that people are drawn to that particular industry um, are not necessarily uh, hugely people-oriented. I mean, they're <laughs> probably very low on that social scale. Um so it's all about if I put my money in this guy or I put my money in this woman's company, um, what's my return going to be on my investment? It's pretty much bottom line. Um, so it doesn't surprise me that passion wouldn't play a big role in their eyes of seeing it. Mm-hmm. But in reality, I think that's part of why so many women's businesses um, 
do so well. I I heard on the it was either the Today Show or Good Morning America just last week. They said that women are employing more people today, and now they're calling it uh, Weenomics because of the the W O E and women. That right. Weenomics is really driving. That's the driving force in the economy today. And, you know, that's pure passion, pure passion, because women don't get all the breaks when they go into business. Um, However, if they have a strong belief in what they're doing and have that passion for it, somehow they just forge ahead and make it happen. Exactly. Well, that that determination and and the come from behind. And I was just reading... Uh, we have got a, a speaker coming up in the middle of May who has a book uh, that very, very specifically addresses uh, the economic power of female-owned businesses. So um, I'm, yeah. I'm looking forward to hearing her take on that. Well, let's move on. Your, your next chapter intrigues me. Treat learning like dirty dishes. Now, that's a comment. You know, sometimes when you're talking to people, I, I mean, as a writer, when people say things, every now and then they'll say something and you go, oh, my gosh, that's a headline. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and this happened to be Linda Hewitt, who is the chairman and CEO of Weight Watchers. And she just said that learning is such an, an important part. She said you have to treat learning like dirty dishes. You can never stop learning. People tend to think that, you know, by the time you get to be, especially of an organization that large and that worldwide, um, you know, there's this tendency to think, well, she's got it. But her emphasis was on how it's like dirty dishes. They're never done. You just have to constantly keep learning so that you stay ahead of the game, ahead of the curve, and are constantly moving forward. I, I just love the saying. <laughs> well, that that one intrigued me, and and you know it's so true. I see this with with our clients in my consulting firm that you know the lack of a desire or or a prioritization uh, rather uh, of, of really building learning into the company culture, you know, causes them to become insular and to not really understand what's going on in the marketplace around them or or to not <clears throat> understand how they have actual opportunities to move ahead of their competitors if they just pay attention. Now, the right. next one, uh, you know, you had indicated that you finished this book just before the Enron crisis, so the next one, Do What's Right and Tell the Truth, <laughs> seems very, very timely to that. Yeah, it wasn't that timely. Um, the publisher called one day and said, um, we'd like to submit your name for the um, media list for um, ethics, and I said, "Well, I'm not an ethicist. I, you know, that's not my background." And she said, "Read your book." <laughs> <laughs> and so, as it turned out, she did submit my name, and and I ended up being one of like 25 people nationwide. Um, but yes, that was so. That rang across this whole group of people in one way or another. Some said it more resoundingly than than others. But um, to me, Lynn Roberts was probably the poster boy for Do What's Right and Tell the Truth. Um, because if you know, Lynn Roberts at the time was the head of Radio Shack. 
And, um, you know, he had actually come from the fast food industry, and Shoney's had hired him. And if you remember, Shoney's went through the largest discrimination lawsuit in, in the, you know, ever. And um, he didn't know they were in the midst of that when he went with them. And he basically one day called the board together and said, look, what you did here was wrong. Um, what you need to do is just fess up to it, uh, do the right thing, and move and you know, make the amends and move on with it. And they fired him. They oh fired him gosh. because of it. So in essence, he stood up for what was right, and he was fired for it. And, of course, what happened was that the, you know, newspapers all picked that up. It was, you know, big headlines that he had been fired, and, um, and he went on to head Radio Shack. So he just, to me, he was just, like I said, the poster boy for being uh, so uh, rigid in his belief system that it was important to do the right thing and to tell the truth and to have that transparency. And, of course, you know, that's exactly what's the opposite of the Enrons and WorldComs and things of that nature. Well, as I tell my 11-year-old, it always comes out. You never know how and you never know when. Right. But uh, if you don't tell the truth, we will find out. But that leads us right into the next one, which is trust is a must. Yeah, there. I, this, this is probably one of my favorite women. Um, her name is Ann Hambly. She was CEO of Prudential Asset Resources at the time. Um, and... Uh, her quote in that particular area of the book was, what I had to learn early on is what people expect more than anything else out of a leader is honesty. And, um, you know, we many of them talked about how uh, when you are able to just tell the truth and, and to be honesty, that that develops the trust, and that if that can't be there in a leader then it's almost like you've given permission for there not to be trust through the rest of the organization. So from these leaders' perspectives, that was incumbent upon the leader to do whatever they could to demonstrate trust. You know, when when times are good, I think that that is a lot easier to to um to engender in an organization. I remember in one of my very first jobs um when times were getting difficult, there were a lot of closed door meetings in in a very very small company where where everything had been open prior to that. And I remember it was my first taste of of feeling left out e- even though, you know, there there wasn't anything going on that that didn't come to light over time and they weren't trying to hide anything it's just that that they were having financial difficulty and they knew ultimately it would impact me uh, as their highest paid employee um so have you seen a, a difference in behavior or did you hear anything in the interviews that that talked about uh trust in good times and bad well Again, I would only have this group of leaders to rely on, but I believe that their philosophy was that during, 
it's almost more important during the difficult times. I mean, that it always has to be present, but but that in times when it's difficult, um, it's even more important. Around that time, I think you'll recall, if I mention this, you recall perhaps reading about this, when Dell uh, laid off a bunch of people, and it was actually written about how they called people into a room. The, the people that handled this situation didn't even look at the people, just kind of looked down at their feet and dismissed them all and you know, made sure that they left immediately. And it was just such a terrible feeling. It just eroded so much trust, even among those that stayed. And many of the leaders kind of used that as an example, how, you know, that by just not being honest and truthful and saying, here's what's happening, here's why, it's kind of like Mike McCarthy when he went out and said, you know, I'm going to have to lay you off, and right. it's my fault, it's not yours. And here's what I did, and I mismanaged things. I, and and by being honest, well, what that did was it established such a, a good feeling among the people that were left because they saw that they had a leader who was willing to accept accountability. Right. And so, and then it left a good feeling among the people that had to be laid off. And then, indeed, when they tried to bring those people back, they were excited to come back. So I, I, I think it just doesn't matter what the times are like, right. that there always has to be that. But obviously when, you know, when it's a tough time, you want to know that you can trust the people. The other thing that happens that they talked about was that when you don't have that trust factor, then if you don't address things candidly, people make up their own Reason. Exactly. You know? That's, so that that's doesn't exactly serve anybody. True. You know, I, this Jim Nicholson at PVS Chemicals, see, I, I loved, this was another fun statement that I thought. He said, the speed of the pack is the speed of the leader. It works in motorcycle gangs and it works in business. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So it's kind of, you know, that's his way of saying if if you're sincere, if you care about the people, if you're trustworthy, you're it's going to penetrate through the organization. Exactly. So the next one is recognize and build people, which is is not an unsurprising one because of the whole need to to care and have this love and regard uh, for the people around you. But, you know, it's not as consistent as you would think in business. And, And we often go in and take a look at at the behaviors that people are observing uh, in their company and if it's, you know, that people aren't as productive as they should be, we invariably find that they aren't, uh, they don't have the right metrics and uh, recognition and rewards in place. So I would imagine that this is foundational to to your findings as well. Yes, and of course the thing is that, um, you know, so often, Someone in hierarchy decides that, well, this is what we're going to do to reward our people. But they don't actually, it's something they decided upon, you know. And a lot of times it's a money kind of thing. And, um, you know, we've had so many uh, surveys and so forth that have been done saying that money is not always the biggest issue. And so 
um, I think these leaders felt that it was really important for managers to really know their people and to reward them with things that were important to them. So you may have uh, someone who uh, has a family and loves baseball and uh, has done a great job, and maybe the best thing for them to reward them is to send the family to the ball game, uh, which maybe they couldn't afford to do on their own for the whole family. Somebody else may want something else. Um, uh, at TD Industries, Jack Lowe said that he thought it was a really important uh, thing to convey to everybody um, the value of the learning. We kind of talked about that earlier, but that was almost like a reward. And he said so many companies during downtimes will cut that, as you you and I had right. kind of mentioned earlier. But he said, you know, we do, we never. He said we start training the second they're here, and we continue it because that's kind of a reward for them to constantly be given new information and how right. how to grow. So, yeah, absolutely um, rewarding people, but it has to be more than lip service. Well, and again, and, and the kind of rewards that you're talking about actually require a knowledge of people's lives right. and, and not just their behavior at work, but really understanding what motivates them. And, and that's part of relationship that, uh, you know, it takes a special kind of leader to ensure that they have that kind of relationship with their people. And it's understandable that if you're the CEO of a, a, a pretty large organization, mm-hmm. you're not going to know every one of them, but then that's your responsibility to know your managers and to right. make sure your managers then, you know, take that take that down. And, right. that all, and the other thing about also just, you know, the old what they call the walking around, um, you know, a lot of leaders – just are clueless because they don't really leave their ivory tower or they kind of exactly. hang around. Yeah, um, I was just going to mention that my best boss ever was um, uh, Mike Buckman with Sabre, and, and Gloria and I were talking uh, before a lot of you got on the phone ab- about the early days at Sabre, but Mike was a master at walking around, and he was unbelievably observant. And I'll never forget the day he walked past my cubicle, and I was just a, a an analyst in, in a product development group. But I was working on the uh, 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles, and I was working on a special project uh, where we were developing software that was going to be used by ABC. And and he just walked past my, my cubicle and he said, hey, Chicky, how are things going with the Olympics project? And all he did was glance at the name on the cubicle and he saw something in my office that was about the Olympics. And, you know, I don't believe he went and asked my boss about me. But just that one effort just changed my, you know, whatever anybody had ever said about him, I became his staunchest supporter because of that. Yeah, and and um, and so you suddenly you felt like, oh, you know, gee, he knows I'm here. He really knows I'm <laughs> right. for this company. Um, one of the other things that Jack Lowe did, um, I was so impressed because I remember when I called. I mean, that was an interesting thing that when I called to set up these meetings, um, especially if I hadn't known this particular individual and I just would have been referred to him, um, you know. Everybody thinks they know true leaders, of course, had to qualify. <laughs> but right. in some instances, you could tell 
from the get-go that this was not going to be somebody you wanted in your book because of all the screening process. When I called Jack Lowe, he answered his own phone. <laughs> Just <laughs> almost stunned me and I said, "Oh, Mr. Lowe, you answered your own phone." And he said, "Well, I'm just I'm just the CEO." <laughs> And when I went to meet with him, he didn't send some secretary out to get me. He came to the lobby himself, very open area. And uh, so one of the things that he talked about was having lunch with employees. You know, a lot of times, as he said, so often the CEO eats in the executive dining room and he said you know we just don't have that here he said i want to go in at lunchtime and i want to sit down with people and i want to know who they are what are they doing what are they hearing so you know there's another way absolutely so the next one is trust your intuition yeah i i you know you hear so much and this is an area where I think um, women oftentimes are are more thought of as having sort of that gut feeling or their intuition, and right. sometimes we get criticized for going with that. Now, some of the men were a little reluctant to call, you know, to to convey that they would, um, you know, they wanted to make it clear that they didn't go totally with intuition. Well, I don't think any of us as women do either but well i think they use the word instinct more frequently yeah um or sometimes they just you know some of them just talked about gut feeling Uh, but it's um you know i one of them said and i don't remember which one this was but one of them very distinctly said that whenever there was like a major problem and he would gather all the facts, and then between past experience and just that inner feeling or gut feeling or, you know, that nine times out of ten, he knew that was what he should follow, even if the facts didn't indicate that that was where they should go. So I think pretty much all of them had some some real strong feelings about that you can't ignore that. Now, you right. you know, you want to bring some realities to it, but um, but there's there's clearly that ability to use that intuitiveness. Well, moving uh, in, into the home stretch here, the next one is to risk to respond and grow. And, you know, I think the, the key word there is is risk, and that without risking, growth is uh, pretty difficult to attain these days. Yeah, and, and the whole issue of mistakes came up there. Not that people um, really want you to make mistakes, but there was this pretty strong feeling about um, how when mistakes were made to not necessarily um, – well, to have an attitude of of really looking at that mistake, what what happened? Well, how do you think that happened? What can we learn from that? Um, and that obviously you don't want the mistake made again, but that mistakes were okay because the you know that philosophy that says someone who has never made a mistake in their life has probably never accomplished anything great. Right. And so um, 
sometimes you just have to um, kind of go out on a limb and be a risk taker and maybe not have all your facts, but you've, you've got to be able to do that and be resilient enough to know that if that wasn't the, the best choice, you have to analyze it, go back and say, okay, why did it fail and what could we have done better because chances are then uh, you'll be able to move forward with it in, in a more positive way. Now, the next one I'm I'm very interested in in the balance of of response from from men and women because the last one is about respecting the importance of balance. And as women, we tend to think more about balance in in looking at our whole lives and how we uh, make each of the pieces fit together. And it, it's been my experience, and one of the reasons we structured the Executive Girlfriends Group the way that it is where we talk about both personal issues and business issues, um, you know, across the board for entrepreneurs as well as corporate employees, is because there tends to be less segregation of parts of our lives. Um, you know, if, if something's going on in our personal life, um, you know, it is not unusual to be talking about that with, with people at work, uh, you know, just to ensure that they understand if there is any, any disruptance um, or disruption in our performance. So, so what about this respect, the importance of balance? What did you hear from men versus what did you hear from women? Well, this, this whole issue of balance seemed to be very important with all of them. However, um, you know, they, they may have looked at it differently. Like, like you say, women have all these balls to juggle, and especially if they have a family. But um, I, I'll use Len Roberts as an example. Um, you know, he had this saying that says you can't do three things. And he says you can't succeed professionally, you can't have a good family life, and you can't have a lot of personal hobbies because there isn't really time to do all those. So you have to make choices and prioritize. And, you know, in his case, it was his family, it was his, you know, his his work professionally and his family. And he said, you know, I love golf, but I just, you know, I, I can't, I just don't have that much time to do that. And um, it was interesting because it was really his father that made such an impact on him. And he's the man that, remember, I told you all the big headlines in the Wall Street Journal right. when he got fired from Shoney's. And it came at a time when his father was on his deathbed. And he went to visit his father, and his, he said his father held his hand, and he said at the end of the day, your work cycle, so to speak, you're going to forget about all these things. Your mind forgets about it. And what you're going to have is the friends and the family that you met along the way. And he said, it's so darn true. At the end of the day, that's really all you have. So you have to pick those priorities. You have to create that balance. Right. And, you know, I mean, we we so often hear both men and women who have um, put everything else ahead of that family relationship or that personal relationship and, you know, it. Um, ends in in divorce and split up children and so forth. And, you know, I mean, there's no perfect, but I think the whole point about the balance is I'm not sure. I think they all kind of agreed at this, that there's probably not a possibility to have a true, true balance, like the scales of balance. Right. But you can 
create an element of balance, but you have to pick priorities. Very interesting. Well, one of the things that we're going to be talking about with this other author that I mentioned uh, earlier when we were talking about women-owned um, and, and run companies is that when this woman looked at the profitability of companies that were run by men, most often they had a stay-at-home wife. And we always do a, um, each year at the Executive Women's Forum, we do a, a straw poll about uh, how many of the women are the primary breadwinners in their families. And these are you know fairly high, highly positioned women uh, in the travel industry. And over 90% typically say that they are the breadwinner. And so I'm wondering if that balance doesn't come more easily for those that have, you know, and whether it's a woman having a, a stay-at-home dad or a stay-at-home uh, husband who takes care of all of uh, the things, uh, you know, just to keep the, the home running well, whether it's easier to achieve that balance. I think that that would be a very, very interesting study to do. Yeah. So at the, at the end of the book, you very aptly uh, name the chapter, So What? So after you hear all about this, you know, what are the predictions of the future? Yeah, I think some of the things that we, um, that we believed um, was that this whole issue of um, value, uh, whatever you want to call it, value, you know, what do people value and what their motivation is, that that would become more significant in the overall uh, success of an individual and in, in in their quest to really lead a company, and I do. Uh, a, another colleague and I have recently done some uh, very extensive research on Generation Y. Only the people who who kind of fall into the category of of being college educated and wanting to move ahead and go into leadership roles, mm-hmm. and boy, that is really prevalent. In that in that group of people, um, they place a heavy amount of emphasis on the things that they value, and um, and that whole value system is shown so well. Um, I would like to think that um, a strong value system um, would have made a difference in the ethics of business, but as we've seen since Enron, you know we've continue to have some of those issues, so I guess reality just tells me that that's probably always going to be a possibility to pop up, but um, um, that whole um, uh, issue of training, I think, um, you know, we've, we've, we've got to, um, I think companies in general, whether you're small or large, have to uh, realize that we have to begin that training early on when they come into the company. Um, I've seen that happen in some cases where some young people have come in and they've really done incredible things within a short period of time because the company had the focus to give them the training that they want. The whole issue of communication. Look at communication today. Good heavens, it's so dramatically different. Right. And... um, you know all of the all of those ethical issues um i mean if you i think what's interesting is i um there are some other books that are out there that are written by more well-known authors and i i love the concepts in some of those books but one in particular is still on the bestseller list for business and almost every company in there is gone they they're just gone 
And I look at my own book and I think, well, these companies are still in existence. There must be something to the philosophy that these leaders have. Right. Yeah, it would be interesting to do kind of a financial profile uh, of of these companies and, and uh, you know, every, every five or ten years uh, do a take on that. Because I, I think you're right. It, it has to be sustainable. And, and in order to be sustainable, it has to be built on a solid foundation. So I, I really appreciate the time you've taken with us, Betty. I don't know if anybody has um, a comment or a question, but uh, if you do want to speak up uh, while we are still recording, please uh, make sure to take your phone off mute, which is star six. Do we have anybody who wants to chime in? Everyone's quiet today. <laughs> well, you've done a really, really thorough job of taking us through this. Now, Betty, I know at the end of the book you've got a couple of uh, questionnaires that people can go through to, uh, you know, kind of assess where they are in each of these values. Um, are there any additional tools that you have developed, uh, you know, in the time uh, since this book was published that helps people assess their true leadership value? Um, no, I mean I um I didn't develop the um the attitudes graph or the what would uh-huh. you call it, motivation or values. Um I do use that from another company, but um I I have been able to have people actually do that kind of an assessment and then, you know, compare it against the true leader graph, which has been pretty interesting. Um and it's just different than behaviors. We hear so much about behaviors, but, right. um, you know, it's kind of like David Novak said, you can have diverse behaviors, but you better have aligned values. And so, I, you know, I just I think that's a real important piece. Well, Betty, thank you so much. Can you let folks know um, how to reach you or where it's best to get information about you and your your practice? Sure. Um, My website is pricegroupleadership.com. And if somebody wants to send an email, it's it's Betty with an E, -E B-E-T-T-E, at pricegroupleadership.com. Okay, great. And I believe uh, Patty got you added to the Executive Girlfriends Group platform as yeah. well, and we will make sure that we have those those numbers there because that's a, a resource that we provide to our members of being able to connect. And uh, for those who didn't get a chance to hear this live today, we will have the audio recording uh, posted both to Blog Talk Radio the Solutions uh, live channel, and also to our iTunes channel. So, um, Betty, we will send you those links so that you can send that out to your network as well. Great. Well, thank you so much. It's wonderful what you're doing, and uh, I'm delighted to have been a part of it. Well, great. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. I'm going to turn off the recording because what's said on the rest of the egg call stays on the egg call.